This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 19, Everything You Imagine is Real, which is a famous Pablo Picasso quote that is pretty relevant, I think, to today's story. Um... I took a little bit of a break. I I haven't recorded in I think three weeks or yeah, close to that. Um, and I feel a little rusty, like, <laughs> but um, I'm excited to record today's story. And the reason I wanted to do this episode today is because this story today is a story that is about one of the secret ingredients to my work. Um, that I've identified one of the things that I think I do really well that I think not only do I do really well, but that I do differently than anybody else. And it sounds like a really gross generalization, you know, maybe to say that, but I don't mean it that way. Like, you know, I know, for example, like Martin Luther King Jr., very well-known, um, very influential activist, um, in history, uh, the in in the world, <laughs> right? Um, he was clearly not the only activist. He was clearly not the only orator. He was clearly not the only activist and orator that was incredibly influential, right? It's just that his particular brand of activism and speaking was uniquely his. That there were there were things that he brought to activism and speaking that no one else did. At least that no one else did in his specific way, right? Like that we're each sort of making our own recipe and we may be each throwing salt and pepper into the pot, right? But their proportions are always different and the way they interact with other ingredients are always different, you know? And so in some ways we're all very similar and also completely different. And I love that idea. I love the idea that we're special and also not special (laughs) and that those two ideas really do go together if we if we're comfortable enough to allow them to go together and I wanted to tell a story that I think does a good job of identifying something that is unique that I bring to my work Um, not just my work um, as an illustrator but also as a teacher and a client a not a, or and a, I guess a client, but also as someone who works for clients and also as a friend and a partner to my husband to to everything um the the ways that we make stuff you know artistically also has a lot to do with the way that we make stuff in every area of our lives, and this story I think is applicable to that um it's a different kind of story and so I kind of just wanted to plunge in and then hopefully circle back around (laughs) with some of the reasons I wanted to share it today because next week um, we are finally going to be having our first guest to Secret Sauce and I'm hoping subsequently um, some more guests coming into October so I I don't know when the next time I'm going to be solo recording is. And so I wanted to do this one today. <clears throat> so this story is probably one of the most recent stories I've ever told on this podcast. Usually 
um, I tell stories that are a little older. I, I think partly because I like telling stories I've had time to process. Um, one of the things that makes a good story is that you know how it's going to end. <laughs> and if you've had time to process a story then or, or an experience, right, then you get to sort of retell it to people with knowing how it's going to end. I feel like knowing the ending is what makes a good story, right? Because then all of the steps are kind of like leading to this satisfying conclusion. <laughs> but when, you, when you're still like in the middle of an experience and you don't have that satisfying conclusion, um, I found that stories can sometimes feel less satisfying to people listening. And so I'm not sure how today's story is going to land with you all, but it's such a fascinating story and it felt really important to share it. So, so here we go. We're going to try something different. <laughs> um, so... Jason and I just wrapped up a trip to West Texas. Um, people listening that follow me on social media know that I love West Texas. I've been there about a half a dozen times in the last few years. I am in the middle of a body of illustrations inspired by the desert and West Texas specifically. And he and I were supposed to go there over July 4th weekend um, and it was going to be his first time. I was so excited. And then he um, had a bunch of stuff come up and he was really nervous about traveling during the pandemic. And and one of the reasons we had chosen West Texas is because you can conceivably, not even conceivably, you can easily <laughs> travel to West Texas. And if you choose, um, easily not see anybody else. Like it's pretty great. Um but he was nervous about traveling. Um, we weren't able to get a refund, so I went by myself. Um, and then we rescheduled a trip together for Labor Day weekend. So we headed out to West Texas um, the week before this one. And I was a little unsure if Jason was going to love it as much as me because, I, I mean, I love it. And I've talked a little bit about it on uh, former episodes, but for those who have been, they kind of know what the experience is like, but for those that have never been, or honestly, you know, people listening that might not be from Texas, it's really hard to describe what it feels like out there because there's so few places in our country like it. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is there's lots of remote wild natural spaces in our country that you can visit. I visited a lot of them and, and also spaces in other countries too. And it wasn't until I went to West Texas in 2018 for the first time that I realized that one thing all of the wild natural spaces I'd been to before had in common was that even if they were really out of the way, that none of the spaces I had been were truly remote that they you could like if I like one of the more remote places I went and hiking was in 2006 I went to um, a little trail in northeastern Utah near Mirror this lake called Mirror Lake and it was really remote and and even still like you could get out of the mountains in like half an hour and then 
get back into a small town within an hour. And like when I say a small town, like I mean kind of like a suburb, you know? Um, that was probably the most remote place I had been to up until this point in my life. And, you know, there's a national park in Ohio by where I used to be a school teacher. It's gigantic. It's a big, beautiful national park. If you're in it, you are truly in the middle of thick, beautiful woods. But if you walk any direction for more than 45 minutes, you will end up in a suburb. Like you're still around things, you know? And West Texas was the first time that I drove through three, maybe four hours of nothing to get there. Like if you're, you're not getting out of there by walking. <laughs> like, and the feeling of being in a place that is truly hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any people is one that I'd never had before. And it was a feeling I wanted over and over after I got it. It's, it was for me, it was a level of peace an inner peace that I had not experienced. You know, I was 38 the first time I went there and it was, you know, you get to a certain age and you stop having wildly radical experiences, right? Because you, <laughs> Most of the experiences you have as you get older are just like repurposed versions of experiences from when you were younger. And so to have a truly novel experience like that at 38 was really special. And it's what caused me to continue to go so often. It's inspired a lot of my artwork. And I really wanted Jason to love it that much. But I wasn't sure. I was kind of bracing myself for maybe he's going to hate it here. And maybe I'm just going to be traveling here by myself in the future, you know? And I didn't even say anything. I just like watched his reactions as we drove out there. And I realized pretty quickly that he got it, that he felt it, the felt it, the, the specialness. Like he, there was an unmistakable sense of awe and wonder. And Jason rarely, um, expresses those types of things for those people that know him um he's a very stoic chill guy and having big um big expressions is not part of his repertoire you know and to experience that with him was really cool and I was so excited we get into the small town um it's a small town of 400 people just uh, about 40 miles north of of Big Bend National Park and it's where I always stay with this lovely couple they have this property on the edge of town it faces hundreds of miles of open land um they have been residents in west texas for much of their lives they used to own a 20,000 acre ranch not too far from the national park and they are like in my opinion the embodiment of tough and tender the the level of grit that these people have for their day-to-day -day life is extraordinary compared to mine. And yet somehow the tenderness and gentleness that they approach life with is in many ways quite a bit more than a lot of the city people I know who live arguably cozier, softer lives. You know, it's it's an interesting dichotomy. I really enjoy conversations with them. I enjoy visiting them. I've, I've talked about conversations with her in former episodes. Um, and so 
Jason and I get out there and we wake up uh, on our first morning. It's a beautiful day. Um, the weather has taken a huge cool dip um, compared to Austin, right? Austin's still like 90s, super hot and humid. And the desert is now solidly in the 70s during the day and like 50s at night. And we were just loving it. We decided to hit the road to the national park um, per me. I, I thought I looked at like kind of what the weather was going to be doing and what I wanted to do with him. And I thought this is normally I don't go into the park on the first day, but I decided to change it up for this particular trip. And I was honestly, y'all, I, if I'm being really, you know, candid, <laughs> I was just so excited for Jason to see the park. So he, he drives us in. Um, it's like a beautiful drive and he was, soaking it up it was cool to be with him and we get in um and we I picked a trail a pretty popular trail um in the Chisos mountains it was a beautiful cool day we had an awesome hike and it was like just rigorous enough that we were pretty dang tired (laughs) afterwards and um and I was supposed to drive back but I, I was really, really out of shape because for those of you that have um, been connected on social media, I've talked a little bit about this, but I had surgery randomly on my eye a couple of weeks prior. It's a long story. And so I haven't been working out and this hike just like kicked my butt. I, I would say I hadn't had a really good rigorous workout in almost a month and and then I'm like trekking five miles through the mountains and I um, was pretty sore. And so Jason says, oh, don't worry, I got it. So we're driving out of the park. It's beautiful, like golden hour, four o'clock. And I started to daydream, which I think everyone listening to this can relate to. I think many creative types, whether they're visual artists or writers or whatever their medium might be, can relate to being daydreamy like that that's I think for me and this is just my personal opinion I don't have any evidence to say this is how it actually functions but I've always suspected that daydreaming is is um is real everything you can imagine is real like I've always said well I I guess maybe maybe that's a dramatic way of putting it but in earlier episodes I've talked about this idea and it's an idea that I um, carry with me often and that is that artists and creatives who make things or feel really compelled to make things whether it's to sell or just or as a hobby never say just as a hobby because just is the worst word ever and I still have to untrain myself (laughs) to do it Hobbies are not just, hobbies are so powerful and amazing and 100% as valid, if not possibly more than selling. So just putting that out there. And I've always really gravitated to this idea that one of the ways that creative people do their work is that they feel what's going on under the surface of things you know that they're not just reacting to what's happening in politics or in nature that they're feeling some 
other stuff. They're feeling the energies in the spaces. They're feeling emotions that are going on in the collective, right? All There's all kinds of information that is very much real, but is not accessible to the five senses. It's more accessible by a sixth sense. And one of the ways that artists have an easier time accessing that information is that they tend to be sensitive. And I've, I've talked about this in other episodes. And I certainly don't ever mean to suggest all artists are sensitive because that's definitely not true. But I think as a rule, um, sensitivity is part of the deal. And I've always, I've always really gravitated to the idea that when we're daydreaming, we're, we're actually brushing up against actual information, you know, that, that there's all kinds of stuff happening in the collective that we're picking up on. And one of the ways that we process it, process it is through daydreams just like nighttime dreams. And so we're driving and the thing that kicks off the daydream was sort of like a practical consideration, which is normally when I would be leaving the park, if it was late, like kind of towards dusk, I would drive a good 10 or 15 miles per hour slower because it's the time when deer come out um, for feeding and I almost tell Jason, you know, hey, you should slow down, but it's only four o'clock and I, and so then I just, just disregard it. But the thought causes this really interesting daydream to kind of like spiral from there. And I have the thought, what would I do if we hit a deer, you know? And in the daydream, I imagine making Jason pull over and I like would get out and see how it was doing. And in the daydream, I like try to put my hands on the deer and have this sort of retaliation from that because you know I'm pretty freaking sensitive and I don't know about you know you listening to this episode but that would be hard for a lot of people to do especially people that feel pain or anything deeply and and then I sort of more like logically like I kind of like extricate myself from the daydream a little bit and I kind of think, you know, this is my next sort of learning curve in life, right? Because, un, you know, prior to this trip, um, the last four years of like working for myself and learning how to work for myself and um has also simultaneously been this process of learning not to feel victimized by my sensitivity. And one of the reasons that I think I had cultivated a pretty substantial sense of victimization around being sensitive was that there was just no one to help me manage it when I was a kid. I, I didn't have tremendously sensitive family members that could tell me what was going on. And so I would have these really unsettling experiences that in hindsight were not unsettling at all now that I know what was going on. But as a really sensitive kid, like, I mean, really sensitive, I would often go into social situations or new environments or new settings and be bombarded by all kinds of thoughts or feelings or sensations that made 100% no sense and often made me feel crazy because I assumed that they were me that I was thinking weird things, that I was feeling weird things. And I would desperately try to like quash it down and just be normal. 
And it wasn't until lots of reflection and wisdom and growing older that I started to realize that all of those weird things were far from weird. It was me just picking up on legitimate emotions and energies around people and spaces. And and the sense of strength that I gleaned from that realization was unparalleled in my life. My life improved a hundredfold <laughs> when I started to wrap my head around that idea. Because I wouldn't feel victimized going into situations. Like things would happen that didn't make sense, but then I would be able to rationally and and logically reflect on them and so I've I've worked with that right I've worked with that energy a lot but there's still this sense that I carry with me from 40 some year you know 37 38 years of sort of living in a way that felt very victimized that um that I still carry with me you know that energy of just, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to be around a dying deer and to touch it and to feel it suffering. Like, I don't think I could handle that. And when I say not handle it, what I mean is handle it in a way that's helpful to the deer, right? Because I could, I mean, I could go and weep (laughs) and be a big old blubbering mess, but that kind of energy is terribly unsettling for a suffering being. And so I was like reflecting on this, this whole freaking narrative, right? As we're driving, I'm thinking, will I ever get to this place in my life where I can be around an animal or a human that's going through a lot of pain and not take it on? Um, or, or, you know, take it, you know, feel it, but not be victimized by it to, to really stand in power with it. And I have the thought, um, yeah. I am 100% on that path. Like, I know I can do it. And then I have the thought, but it's going to take some time. And I'll, and I'll get there later. And as I think, I'm not even kidding. As I think the phrase, I'm going to get there later. Jason collides our car with an elk. And <laughs> it was surreal um I saw it happening in slow motion I made eye contact with the elk because she was on my side of the car um she paused and I knew she was gonna do I knew she was gonna step right in front of our car and I was sitting cross-legged on the passenger seat and I just intuitively pulled my knees which is like a terrible idea to do I pull my knees up to my chin and I put my face down into my knees and I squeeze my eyes closed and I'm like no 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 because in my mind I was like am I making this happen I was surreal to transition so flawlessly from a daydream into real life like that I've never had an experience like that and I was for a split second convinced I was making this happen. He pushes the brakes. He had Jason think, honestly, Jason responded in 100% the perfect way we came to find later. He pushed the brakes hard enough to slow down our car substantially, but not so hard that we would spin out, which was awesome. He turned the wheel gently, and and he said later that this came from his motorcycle um, training, which is awesome. So 
we didn't flip, we didn't spin, and we were able to slow down enough that when we collided with her, um, the impact was, we were probably going like 30 miles an hour, maybe. And it was, it was still, you know, if I'm being honest, awful. Um, I didn't see it. I, my eyes were closed. She walked off. So not, and honestly, in some ways that bothered me more. And I, I was like thinking about it. I was like, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are sensitive people. Like, do I really want to traumatize them with a story about this? Um, and I don't, I definitely don't mean it to be an uncomfortable story to listen to. Um, but I don't really know how else to tell it because it was just by its nature an uncomfortable experience to have. And I, in some ways, just wanted it to be over fast for her because it's re- it was really hard for me to imagine that she walked off and was fine, you know? And, and subsequently, like as the collision happened, this really strong thought came into my mind was, you're not strong enough for this. Like you're not, isn't that a weird thing to think? Like that was literally the thing that came into my mind. So it's over. She's gone. She was with another elk who's also gone. Jason gets out of the car. He checks the car. It's, he says it's really bad, which it was, but it was still running and there was no leaking. So he's like, I think we need to try to get back. We were still like 30 miles from our Airbnb and we were truly in the middle of nowhere, West Texas. So there wasn't a whole lot of options. So he starts driving and it was the most emotional I've ever seen Jason. And like, it was like a big deal because he's not an overly emotional dude. And I mean, he, well, sorry, let me backpedal. Jason's ridiculously in touch with his emotions, but he is, um, he, man, he expresses them very differently than I do. And so sometimes it's really hard for me to tell. And in this particular moment, it was very easy for me to tell that he was really sad and So I was doing the best that I could to just not make it worse. You know, I didn't (laughs) want to start, you know, throwing all these big emotions around when he was the one that had just gone through the majority, the brunt of the situation, you know. So we're driving back. We miraculously have no problems. Like it wasn't even like there was a rattle. (laughs) It was so weird. We get in the, like in the best way. We get back to the Airbnb. The hosts of our Airbnb take one look at the car and they're like, and they just like give Jason the biggest ego boost of his life. Well, not of his life, but you know, of the night because, and and just say, hey man, they're like, there's not a better scenario if you're gonna have this experience. You did everything right, and that was really good to hear. Um, they told us 18 wheelers have gotten tipped over from colliding with these. I mean, she was probably a good six or 700 pounds. It was, it wasn't something we really realized honestly, until we got back, like the looks on their faces was like to total amazement that we were fine. And also that the car was drivable, you know? Um, and so we should have, well, I should have been really grateful. And in, in a lot of ways, I was. 
But I was having this like weird, like over the next like 24 hours, we weren't really able, like our vacation was like ostensibly over. Like we didn't really know if we could drive anywhere else and we were waiting to hear back from insurance, but it was on the weekend. And I had some pretty significant whiplash from tucking my head down in my knees during an impact was a terrible idea. So, so we were just kind of like sitting around, like waiting for some answers to our situation. And during that time, I, you know, really didn't have a whole lot to do except perseverate on this situation. And this weird thing started to happen where like on one hand, I really saw a tremendous amount of magic in this interaction that I've been working for my whole life to learn how to manage the energy, the victim energy, and to stand in power in my life, right? Like this, this is the freaking work I'm here to do. Like being an illustrator and a teacher and a solo entrepreneur is a symptom of that journey. It's proof that the journey is working, right? It wasn't ever my main life goal. Like I I, I thought it was, I thought being an artist was a main life goal, but really I think it was just that in the back of my mind, I knew if I could work for myself as an artist, it would mean that I had really done a tremendous amount of inner work to get there. I, I just didn't look at it that way at the time. And I'm so proud of that and I and and in some ways it was just really magical to have the thought that you are strong enough to to be with another being who's going through pain in a way that is really comforting. That was literally the last thought I had before we collided with this elk. And it was like the universe was saying, oh, you, you think you're going to do this later? Oh, no, you're doing this now. <laughs> like initiation is now. <laughs> you're strong enough now. <laughs> and to me, that was a beautiful way of looking at the experience. In some ways, it made me want to, it, it like conjured up a lot of thoughts about Native American traditions. And obviously, I only have secondhand experiences with Native American traditions, but I know that a lot of them honor animals and they honor the interactions they have with animals like this because they view all interactions with nature as communication with divine. And in some ways, I wanted to profoundly thank this elk for being a part of a message I don't think I would have gotten any other way. That was one way of looking at the situation. Then there was this other like shittier voice that was saying, you you just collided with a sweet, innocent animal (laughs) who is minding her own business, walking through a field where she probably almost never sees people ever in her life. Um... It was really hard for me not to think of the myriad ways, and we all can relate to this, right? The myriad ways that the situation would have been different if I had made a different choice. If I had been the one to drive, 
Um, in all likelihood, the collision probably wouldn't have happened at all because I have a much more um, familiar experience with driving in West Texas. Maybe not. Maybe it's even a little bit egotistical for me to assume that. But um, one of the aspects of the situation was that Jason had no expectation of an elk <laughs> stepping out in front of his car. And I did. And I was trying not to, to spiral about that. But, there, but you know, isn't it very human for us to say, what if? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? And then there was part of me in a more illogical way that was saying, did I make this shit happen? Did this sweet baby elk potentially most likely lose her life because I like weirdly conjured up some type of fucking terrible energy with my daydream? Like, and is that silly? Maybe, yeah, for sure. But I feel like to the same extent that it's silly, you could also argue maybe not. How often does that experience happen? I would say probably for most people, never. I don't know many people that have the experience of seamlessly crossing from a daydream into reality within a second. That just doesn't happen to people. And if it were to happen to people, I would argue that most of them would respond in a really similar way to me, that there has to be something going on here. There has to be. And I know... And and here's what's like really funny about this is for those of you familiar with Jason, um, he's he's a science nerd. Like we are a fabulous team because of how similar and how different we are at the same time. And I just realized early on in our relationship that if we were going to work, he was going to have to hear my perspective on this kind of stuff, even if he disagreed with it. And so we have this really open dialogue about all of the things that I um, perceive. Even if he personally disagrees with that, he's always been really supportive and it's one of the reasons we work. And so we have this accident and the first thing out of my mouth was, I saw this, Jason, I saw this. It was like the most inappropriate thing to say by the way, like he was in total shock. And, but so was I. And I, I just, I just couldn't, I found myself sort of like blubbering. I saw this, I I saw this happen in my head just now. And he looks at me and he goes, what? And I go, I'm not kidding you. I just had a daydream about hitting a deer like two seconds before it happened. And he, without missing a beat says, why didn't you tell me? which is not something Jason would say any other time, right? Because Jason's, he doesn't ascribe to daydreams in that way. And in that moment, it was like, he just completely got it. And I said, oh my gosh, Jason, I I don't think to ever tell you even a fraction of the crazy stuff that goes through my head, right? Like this was the initial conversation we had before he got out to look at the damage of our car. It was bizarre so we're back in this little town I'm oscillating between these two sort of spirals on one hand it was magic on the other hand this is victimizing the shit out of us right like and I'm having this really fascinating perspective that I've never had before with these two potential stories around this incident that like for the first time the first for the first time in my life to this extent i am able 
to recognize that I get to choose. That I get to choose if this was a magical, meaningful experience meant to enrich and transform my life for the better. Or this was a devastating fuck up that means we're you know, irresponsible, reckless drivers. Like, and I'm being dramatic in ex in sort of like narrating them, but you know, they were very different paths to take when deciding how to interpret the situation. And I desperately wanted to choose the former and I was having a terrible time letting go of the latter that my brain just kept going into this really ugly negative place with this experience. And I was doing the very unhelpful thing that a lot of people do, which is beating themselves up for beating themselves up, right? So I was having these hysterical inner dialogues of like, you are powerful, quit choosing to be a victim, you, and like, and like, like never, never is it helpful to yell at yourself when you're struggling, you know? And by the day after this, collision I am so internally struggling that I leave the Airbnb and Jason comes with me and we walk like a quarter of a mile to you know this is a tiny ass town there's like you can walk everywhere in one mile (laughs) we walk a little ways to this this beautiful garden that is manicured by a local pretty like swanky hotel um, if you can believe a town of 400 people has a swanky hotel, you <laughs> you can believe it. This um, particular town has this very cushy hotel um, that hails back to the days of like oil tycoons driving through and stuff. And so they've created this beautiful garden and it's an oasis in the middle of the desert. It's green and lush and we're sitting there and Jason's trying to be supportive, but I'm in a toxic mood. Like, I feel like I'm just a piece of black energy, you know, like, and I can tell that he just is kind of walking on eggshells. He doesn't want to just cause an explosion. And I'm weirdly like on the edge of exploding for no reason. And I don't want to do that. He's, he's having a hard freaking time too. And so finally I just say, Hey, look, I need to just be by myself for a little bit. He walks back and I sit in this garden for like 20 minutes and I try to meditate and it, it helps. Um, but you know, not like to the extent that I wanted to. And I finally start to get really hot. And so I decide to head back. And as I'm leaving, I have the thought everything gets impossibly uncomfortable right before you let it go. That's like why, like that's how it functions, right? Um, The point of getting super, super uncomfortable is that that is the impetus for letting anything go. And I think, well, that's a beautiful idea, but what does that mean for me now? I'm miserable. Like I, (laughs) I brush it off. I don't, you know. And I get back to the Airbnb and I don't know why, but I I see Jason's smiling face and I feel better. And we chat for a little bit and then um, 
the owners of the Airbnb invite us to have a patio dinner using some organic vegetables from her garden and they invite a sweet older couple um, who are they hail from San Antonio um, she's a free immigration attorney and he was a veterinarian and um, the thing that's so fascinating about this couple is that all of their friends are so diverse right like they're like hardcore libertarian like live off the land type of people and they invite over this uber liberal like progressive leaning couple and the the conversation is fascinating and respectful and i'm just blown away by it and we have the most beautiful food and the sun sets and it's like almost completely pitch black because they don't have the lights on they don't put lights on out there because they're part of the dark sky initiative and um we just sit in almost total darkness talking to each other on this porch and I go to sleep that night and I have this distinct feeling that this would never have happened if the collision hadn't have happened. And we get up the next day and we're able to get in touch with our insurance and we make the hard decision that our vacation's officially over um, before it like really honestly began. And we decided to try to drive back to Austin. And I have this wave of sadness again. I'm just feeling like kind of like black, like, oh, you know, and, and then weirdly the memory of this gorgeous dinner with these people kind of bubbles back up in my mind. And I'm thinking clearly, um, clearly the, the path forward is going to be easier if we just like follow the flow and the flow is saying it's time to go home. So (laughs) miraculously, we drive a car that has just collided with an elk 500 miles back to Austin without a single problem, which was amazing. And on the way back, Jason and I have one of the most fun road trips we've ever had. I still don't totally know why. Maybe it's because we were just like on the edge of our seats to see if we were going to like die at any time. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we were laughing. We were telling stories. It was wonderful. It was the the epitome of the type of road trip you want to have with your partner, you know. And as we get closer to Austin, the sun comes out and it's beautiful. And I'm like struck by this feeling again of like this would not have happened if the if the collision hadn't have happened and and also it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been so committed to trying to tell a better story. And that was an interesting thought to have, right? And I started to reflect on this idea like after we got back to Austin. And it was an idea I wanted to posit in the podcast episode. And it's one that I don't really have any basis of proving. Um, So it really is just an idea. Um, But that idea is 
is it possible that all interpretations of random events are true? Is it possible that however we choose to imagine a thing becomes real? That we're not just artists in the ways that we paint on a canvas or the ways that we type words into a novel or whatever, that we're literally creating our experience moment to moment. And when the choice is made, it becomes real. And had I chosen to view the out collision as something really dark and negative, that that could have also become real, that that both were real or both were potentially real until I chose. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with quantum mechanics or quantum theory, but this is one of the tenets of that form of science, which is that they've found that a particle and a wave um, that in, and, and actually I'm realizing my limited memory of quantum science, which let's be honest is super limited because <laughs> how often do I read about this? That um, within an atom or within a molecule are particles and waves. And, and particles can operate as, as, as a solid particle or as wave energy. But they be, are, they're kind of neither until they interact with someone. And that when someone looks, the particle collapses into one or the other based on the interaction it's having with the person. I, I remember the first time I read that and that very disjointed, shitty explanation is so subpar. You have to look it up and read about it yourself. Um, the first time I was exposed to that idea, I almost was, I was almost too excited. Like, is this possibly true, right? Because that idea, which is now, you know, fully backed by research, um, shows that we are artists in every instant of our lives you know that what we choose to perceive becomes real but that all options could be real all interpretations could be real okay am i saying that there's no such thing as like facts (laughs) Am I saying that if someone says the sky is purple, that they must be given the same level of respectability as someone who recognizes the sky is blue? Like, and that's a silly example, but you get my drift, you know? Um, no, like we're living in a time of unprecedented problems around this also, right? We're really um formally agreed upon facts are now being called into question because people are choosing to tell very profoundly false stories about things that are arguably really easy and observably true. <laughs> and so I'm certainly not making any case for everything under the sun 
being fair game because that would be chaos. Um, What I am saying is that when seemingly random things, when really challenging, complex things happen, what are, do we have some creative choice in the stories that we tell going forward? Do we have some choice in how we interpret the things that happen to us? And how does artistry play a role into that? And I started to realize this is something that I've always done and it's helped me in ways that I don't think I really wrap my head around until like this week. Um, I It is one of my secret ingredients that in my work and in my life, I've always been, for whatever reason, profoundly good at telling really helpful, positive stories around really challenging situations. And I've talked about this in in an earlier episode, but it really became apparent to me when I first, um, years ago, went home, I guess it was in 2000, 2018. Um, I talk about this in like episode two or three, maybe, um, Jason and I went home for Christmas and that particular Christmas was the 25th anniversary of when I had helped bury a time capsule with my church youth group when I was 12. And we decided to collectively meet uh, during the Christmas time break when most people would be home and, um, and unearth it. And inside this time capsule was a cassette tape where we had answered questions about where we thought we would be in 25 years. And when it got to 12-year-old Becca and her interview on the tape, it was like hearing an alien. <laughs> I remember my sweet husband was sitting there listening. And he told me later in the car, he said, I didn't even know who that was. Um, it was like not even a shadow of the Becca I know. Which is, which is arguably untrue for everyone else in the youth group. Like, Every, everyone else listening to their 12-year-old selves, you could see <laughs> that they still very much were embodying their childness. Like that they're, uh, That's kind of a weird way of putting it, but that, that the changes between their young selves and their current selves, while you know noticeable, were nowhere near as dramatic as mine. Jason was, he's such an honest dude that I was, that I just was really struck by him using such, I would almost say dramatic language, you know, that he, he, he said he couldn't recognize me. I sounded like a very timid female Eeyore, which I mentioned in an earlier episode. (sighs) And there would be these long, uncomfortable pauses where you got the sense that I could barely stand to talk. And when I did, it was like the words were like wounding me. It was the most melodramatic, painful thing to listen to. And 
aside from the energy being so, so terribly low, I had, you know, almost nothing to really say. Like they, you know, I, they would ask me questions like, well, what do you think you'll be doing? I don't know. Right? Like I didn't even have the confidence to like imagine where I might be. And hearing that at age 38 was fascinating because I, I guess I had just forgotten how far I'd come, you know, like I had forgotten how terribly victimized I was by life at that time. And and then this freaking whole thing happens with the elk and I start having this weird internal battle with how I'm going to interpret this random experience. And I realize this is what I've done my whole life. Um, things will happen and I will struggle, but eventually I will choose the better story, the better filter, the better lens of which to view sometimes really tragic situations. And slowly over time, I've created a totally different life. Um, I'm really proud of that. It is one of my secret sauce ingredients. And I, I am certain that um, huge chunks of the life that I have today would not have been possible without that ingredient. And to me, the power of secret sauce as an idea is that the secret ingredients in your sauce could be as random as the one I just told you a story about, right? Like it doesn't have to be your ability to wield a paintbrush. It could be because that's badass. But it also could be something like being able to tell really positive stories about elk collisions. And for what it's worth, I am 100% on board with the idea that that elk was there to give me a really important message. And no one listening to this needs to ascribe to that idea because it, it would be silly for me to even suggest that people consider that idea as valid some people intuitively probably love that idea and other people don't and that's how it should be in the world take what resonates with you and leave the rest as a huge part of secret sauce in general but um is a story Does a story have to be true for everybody to be helpful? I don't think so. I think our stories are creative art tools for how to make our lives better and higher versions um, than ever before. And in that regard, the story about the elk is profoundly helpful because the way that I've been able to move forward this past week has been with a lot of ease and grace and gratitude that would have been completely impossible had I told really negative, hateful stories about the experience. And um, I think that can be that can be a really challenging thing to do. I, I know maybe in some ways and 
you know, I don't know if it sounds flippant to say, you just tell good stories, just tell good. <laughs> um, it is something that I am proud of and something that I think I'm pretty good at, but I certainly don't mean to suggest that it's easy. Um, simple, not easy. Um, because there's a lot of blowback in my brain and also I think in the culture of that that real progress is like you need to take a good hard look <laughs> you need to be <laughs> you need to get back to reality right like there's these like weird sort of tough love phrases that sometimes we can tell to ourselves when we're trying to make the best out of a, a bad situation. And let's be honest, we're kind of in one of those collectively right now. Not just one, like so many. There's tremendous racial upheavals in our country. The West Coast is on fire in a way that it never has been. Our elections are corrupted in a way that we've never seen in our lifetime. Um... We are, <laughs> we are experiencing, I guess you could use like the largest global pandemic in the last century. We're on the precipice of possibly the worst Great Depression uh, in the United States history. And that's a lot. <laughs> it is really challenging to look at all of that. And to say, let's tell some magic stories about how this is good. <laughs> um, if it sounds like that's what I'm suggesting, um, I'm definitely not. Um, I think what I am saying is that whatever we do choose, um, whatever we imagine will become real. That's how we got to where we are now. What we have now on our planet was the best that collectively we could imagine in the last few centuries. And that's a sad thing to admit. And also, it gives us a lot of power going forward to realize that we can imagine something different. And for me, the most important work I've done has been individual that I'm starting to wrap my head around how revolutionary it is to slowly over the course of my life shut down that piece of shit voice that tells me that imagining the elk was there for magic, that crappy brain voice that's like... <laughs> that's making me feel silly and ridiculous, slowly and systematically healing that voice in some ways I think is the best thing I can do for the planet. Because if everyone heals that voice in themselves, we will have a different planet overnight. We are artists in that way. The world we have out there is a reflection of the worlds we have in here. And I, I'd argue in some ways the world that we have out there is a really big macro version 
of that crappy voice that's telling you, you hit the freaking elk, <laughs> you jerk. You know, like that voice times a million, that's our, that's our country, so, you know, in some ways. And in other ways, it's shifting big time. And the magical, mystical, sweet little voices that are saying, no, the interaction is there to serve you. Those voices are coming out more. Those stories are coming out more and they're winning. And I love it. And in the meantime, um, but, but in the meantime, right, the more that those sweet, new lighter stories bubble up to the surface that angry crappy other story gets stronger too no 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 you listen it was like me sitting in that dang garden just like having a freaking inner battle with which one is it gonna be I think collectively sometimes I wonder are we are we kind of there which one is it gonna be and I I certainly don't mean to simplify something and say that it's one way or the other but just for the sake of the story I think it's really compelling to sort of see this sort of tension happening. And artistically, I resist any narrative about good against evil because I personally think that those stories are very antiquated. And we are recognizing that there's no such thing as totally good and totally evil people but we're just all people with huge arrays of grays inside of ourselves. And we're all learning to just tell and create better stories around our experiences and in so doing, shift the collective artwork together. Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of a woo place to get after <laughs> after that story. Um, it's, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, this just happened and I, I, I sort of kind of, well, sort of, kind of, <laughs> it's like, I can talk good. <laughs> it, it's an unfinished idea, right? I'm still fleshing it out, but I think that there's some really interesting ideas to be had around this idea. Everything we can imagine is real. And is the most profound activism that we can have the one between our two ears. I'm starting to recognize that you can change the world just by being really, truly, energetically light to the cashier at Target. Right? Like, like <laughs> I, I'm starting to wrap my head around the ways that you can change anything by working with the stuff in between your ears. Like, I I don't know. I'm obviously still kind of, like, mucking on it a little bit. So this is today's episode. It's a little different, like I said. <laughs> I don't normally, yeah, you know, I, I was definitely not planning on telling that story for a long time. And then I got this crazy push to tell it now so I just I went with it because clearly my intuition is is okay since I picked up on that deer running out well it wasn't a deer it was an elk so I guess I'm close huh 
Jason pointed that out. He's like, it wasn't a deer. (laughs) The daydream was a deer and the universe delivered an elk. Everything you can imagine is real. Um, Anyway, take what resonates with you. Leave the rest. That was a wild story. Um, I'm excited to connect with you next week and bring our first guest. I'm not totally sure which episode I'm going to release first, so I'm going to make it sort of like a a secret, I guess. You just have to stay tuned. Um, If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking us out on Patreon. Um, I am slowly working on my way up to building the podcast into a much more systematic, regular thing. And your support on Patreon is tremendous, even at a dollar a month. So please consider doing that. Also, please consider if you feel called to leave a five-star review. Sorry, I'm like having late recording hiccups for some reason. Um, those reviews do wonders with helping the algorithm find other people that might be interested in this content as well as sharing it with your friends and family um so many people that listen to secret sauce were connected to it by you and it is no small thing even just to send it to one person so thank you for doing that um the sweet messages and the kind words you sent mean so much because um you know i'm kind of just figuring it out as they go (laughs) a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, So thank you. And until next time, friends.